All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, all flight controllers, go to go for landing. Retro, go. Right up, go. Guide, go. Control, go. Down, down, go. GNC, go. Econ, go. Capcom, we're go for landing. This is The Space Shot, episode 392, a pre-launch breakfast with Gene Krantz. I'm John Moldix. Before we dive into the audio from this Tuesday morning event, I've got a bit of news that I want to make sure everyone catches. I'm giving a talk at a library in Colorado. The title of my talk is From Apollo to Artemis and Beyond. It'll be a look at the past, present, and future of lunar exploration. Be sure to check out the Space Shot Facebook page for more details. Today you're going to hear from Gene Krantz, the legendary NASA flight director. He was a guest speaker at the Wings Over the Rockies Museum this week. Thanks again to Ben and everyone at the museum for hosting this event and letting me share the audio from that day with all of you. Bear with us on the audio a little bit. We were inside an aircraft hangar, so the acoustics weren't ideal for a podcast, but it was an awesome place to be. Check out the Wings Over the Rockies Museum next time you're in Colorado. There are some beautiful aircraft on display, and it's well worth a stop. Our flight museums for about eight years. We do uh, actually flew in the B 17, and we do uh, between 10 and 25, sometimes 30 air shows a year. We start off in Texas. My wife loved it. But start off in Texas, and we eventually work our way up to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Unfortunately, uh, this is where we'd stage before we go to Oshkosh. We had a sweetheart deal with the uh, Southwest Airlines. So you could go home and greet the wife again, and she'd tell you about the washing machines not being up the right or down the line. And then we get back up there and continue down the East Coast. And so it was really a great way to live. So there's a love that every person that works and grows and learns at this museum has for flight. And that's actually what, uh, what got me into the business. I, was, uh, I grew up in a military boarding house my father died when I was seven. My mother had, uh, we had a three-bedroom house. She shoved all the kids, my two sisters, myself, and her in the one bedroom. And we rented out the house, rented out two of the bedrooms for military personnel who were in transit. We lived right next to the American Legion. And this really uh, gave me, I'd say, the background, the foundation for my life. Taught me about discipline, morale, toughness, confidence, commitment, teamwork. But more so, it taught me about love for country and sacrifice, which are the key elements. As I said, I worked on, uh, flew some very interesting early aircraft, and actually was flight test engineer in the B-52. When the program was finishing, basically I was looking for my next job, and I had an opportunity to go out to uh, Edwards in the F-4 program. 
And also, uh, I was interested in looking, getting into this uh, new age of space, getting into rocketry and grab one up in general dynamics. There was a advertisement uh, in Aviation Week magazine that indicated they were forming a space task group. And I thought, gee, I even like that name, a space task group. <laughs> and it said they were looking to determine the feasibility of putting an American in space. And I said, holy cow, we're Russians have done it. Are we, do we think we can do it? Heck yes, we can do it. But basically I was in a bullpen and uh, people would come in periodically and pull people out and say, you're going to launch operations, you're going to recovery, you're going to engineering. And a gentleman comes in, taps me on the shoulder and says, I'm Chris Kraft, I, you're working for me now. I want you to go down to the Cape, write a countdown, write some mission rules, and when you're through, give me a call and launch. I've been in the job two weeks. So I went down to the Cape, I got, we learned that left, we landed at Patrick Air Force Base. And I didn't know whether the Cape was north or south of the base. So that was, that was my first real challenge, was figuring out how to get to the Cape. But anyway, this was a, a marvelous uh, lesson, lifetime lesson in leadership from working with Chris and the other people in the program. And what it all comes down to, it all comes down to the ability to form a team because there's nothing in life, particularly in the business space, where you got an aircraft moving, a spacecraft moving five miles a second. Uh, you can't come up with all the answers. You need the team to help you do it. And uh, it's really somewhat hard to describe what a flight director's job is. His, his job description is only one sentence long. It says the flight director may take any action necessary for crew safety and mission success. And uh, it's pretty simple. Take any action necessary for crew safety and mission. But basically what it's about is accountability. And every time you launch, you really say, if I don't get that guy back home, I am accountable for the failure. You know, so that's an interesting thing. But if you read the book, Apollo, by Charles Murray and Catherine Y. Cox, uh, Charles Murray did a good job in writing a description. He says, flight director must know in technical detail one of the most complex vehicles ever made, master a flight plan and a huge body of mission rules, piece together tiny bits of often unconnected information coming from multiple sources, often at the same time. Do this under the gaze of the world in situations that give you only seconds to make life and death decisions. It's just not a job for anybody, but it also has no equal, and that is true. Basically, after the Apollo 1 fire, I was made the chief of the flight control division, so I had the responsibilities of building all of the divisions that would fly Apollo and all subsequent programs, even right through the shuttle program. Now, interestingly enough, we're, talk, we're thinking about launch day today, and launch day is the result of 18 months of planning, three months of training, numerous reviews. You had a bunch of problems you had to step up to and say, we're going to fix that, we're not going to fix that, we'll develop or work around for this, but it's always an issue of trade-offs. And some of these trade-offs are very different because you know, whatever that decision you make in the design of spacecraft, I worked with the program office uh, to address every issue that come up from previous flights, that issue that came up in manufacturing. But uh, there's no such thing as a perfect spacecraft. There's no such thing as a perfect spacecraft, so it requires judgment. 
and it requires darn good risk judgment. My concern for the future, they say they want to go to the moon uh, by 2024. It's really, I think it's going to be easier to build the teams. I mean, build the spacecraft from the teams because you have to build the team that has knowledge and the ability to perform this strategy. But anyway, launch day is a result of 18 months of planning, three months of training. And you're finally down to the day where you're walking into mission control. Let's say, thank God, all that stuff's over. Now we got the job to do. And you drive, we live about uh, five miles south of mission control. And the many times I've driven in this kind of a day, and I arrive at mission control, and I don't even remember whether I stopped at the stoplights along the way, it's just complete blank. And, uh, but this day for uh, Apollo 11 was different because all of a sudden there's a Negro security guard in there, Moody. We love him. Most cheerful guy you'd ever seen comes up, offers you a salute, and says, We can launch today, Mr. Kranz. And I say, Yeah, we're going to go for it. And then you walk down the uh, walkway towards mission control. And normally it's uh, very busy. People are always talking right or down the line, but nobody's talking today. Everybody's preoccupied. You go into the building, and there's no security guards. I'm like, God, i got to show my badge. I don't know who the heck I am. And uh, so you go there, and they let you walk. You never use the elevators in mission control. You walk up three flights of stairs. Because when we built mission control, they were worried the computers were on the same floor that you had an entrance to floor one, they're worried about electric noise, <laughs> you know, giving problems with computer machines you had. So basically, the elevators are great big automobile hydraulic lifts that pump you up to the floors. And it's not unusual to get stuck in the elevator <laughs> midway during the uh, period. So during missions, you never use elevators. Training is okay. <laughs> so then you walk into uh, the mission control room and there's another guard checking your badge. Holy cow. This is the third time I've been nut uh, by security here. But it's, it's just a different, you walk into that room and it is a different day. And the thing that's, that's amazing, and it's not that we're uh, uh, basically worries about or superstitious, but the first thing you look at are the flowers here today. From the very beginning of the Apollo program, an individual that we did not know would send a bouquet of red roses there. And if the roses are there, then yep. there you see the flowers in front of the room. My monitor here isn't working, so I have to turn around and check every once in a while. But this is the uh, way that the mission control is now restored. And it is absolutely spectacular. You walk into that room and all of a sudden you're 50 years younger. And if you want to find something to basically uh, increase you know, your ability to perform as an adult, an older adult at that. But anyway, you look for the roses. And if they're there, it's just incredible. You just know things are going to start right. They're up and operating. Mission Control I look at as a leadership laboratory where we take young kids, generally uh, first year out of college, give them about four years of training, and we uh, basically teach them 
the business of assuming great responsibilities. We have a uh, document that we call the Foundations of Mission Control. And it says, always be aware that suddenly and unexpectedly you may find yourselves in a role where your performance has ultimate consequences. For the young people we have in the back room and the front room, there's nobody to pass the buck to. It's their decision. And I love living that way. You know, I love living where you have conscious decision, go or no go, right or wrong. And uh, I think that's one of the things that keeps the people in mission control, not only on top of the job, but really sets the pace for the living. And I've been in here and launched, I've launched uh, two of the Saturn 1Bs and Apollo 5 and 9, and I launched two of the Saturn 5s. And it's easy to be intimidated uh, by the, that particular rocket. I mean, it is, uh, oh, yeah, I just got my checklist. The first thing I do when I, I don't, I, I, I will work this out tonight. But basically, uh, I'm a checklist person. And this is the checklist that uh, I developed. Actually, uh, during the Gemini program, I carried it over and did a few write-ins. But the first thing I always do is make sure it's in place. Because when you have emergencies here, you only got seconds to work. And I'll show you some of the layout of the paper that I use here. But basically, uh, you go through what is the problem indications? Do we have the procedures available to work that one? Uh, what is the lifetime available? And each of these controllers has to give me very crisp, sharp answers when we have problems. Data recovery. Data is the key. And basically, we basically have an entire team in mission control. So job, when we have problems, is to recover our team, break it down, and make it instantly available. Now, if you go back into the 60s, it wasn't instantly available. Instantly <laughs> might be two hours available. But basically, that's their job. And the next thing you got to take a look and say, what is the mission impact? So you go through this process, and okay, my, my checklist is in place right now. And uh, my team's all tagged up, ready to go. You can see some write-ins, but this is the exact one that I used for my final launch of Apollo 17. Uh, the countdown. Countdown strategy is you always take a, take a look at what are the last things in the last 12 minutes. And uh, during this terminal countdown, time really starts to move, and it's really amazing. You can be from 12 minutes down to five minutes, and if you're not on top of the clock, and that's the flight director's job. His job is to maintain the clock. Don't let anybody run the clock out on the air. That is my consumable. So you go down there, and, and the first thing you do is write in some numbers that your team is giving you. What is the feet? What time? If we abort, what time during the abort will the spacecraft land in water? Because land landing is an entirely different problem. Spacecraft wasn't designed for that. Very impacting, very concerned about the crew health. You got to figure out what the firing azimuth is because that's key to some of the next steps you're going to do. You have to establish what are going to be our hold points that we will require during the countdown. Redefine those. You work those over with the test conductors right on down the line. But the preferred hold point is always roughly around eight minutes. So you get squared away on the countdown. You arrange your console down there, the countdown books are about that thick. So basically what you do is I always break it down into a series of checklists that I use here. Uh, the next step is to start uh, making the rounds of my people, my teams in place. 
And uh, these, you can get an idea, they're not very old. They're generally in about 26, 27. And this is what we call the trench. And uh, the trench is, uh, I had a Marine by the name of John Llewellyn. He was one of the survivors in the uh, withdrawal from the Chosin Reservoir. And basically is my rector fire officer. And we have these, remember, you know what pneumatic tubes are, we send messages around in mission control. In a series of canisters like used in banks and you still use it way. And if you're not paying attention, you're missing these keep coming out of the device and land on the floor right next to you. And one day after looking at about half a dozen of the same floor, he says, I think it back in the trenches again. And that trench is now maintained. It's recognition all the way through. They have matchbooks that are cockier than heck. But again, that's that's a unifying element within this team. So anyway, we've uh, gone through that and uh, Next step is to go visit the recovery room. I spent a lot of time here uh, for many reasons because this is a control center that is now operating. It is basically providing direction for all of the military forces supporting the mission. Aircraft carriers out in the Pacific, ships at sea in the Atlantic in there. We have destroyers, we have aircraft carriers, we have various uh, light uh, utility aircraft that are flying the area down there. We have long range aircraft. So it's a search and rescue forces the whole world. And uh, basically now they're giving me their status, which sites are available in case we intend to abort. If we're gonna abort that area and the site's ship's not available, how many hours is it going to be to retrieve a brother down line? Because during launch phase, you got many decisions you're going to make. And you always wanna to try to abort where the impact, where the trajectory will take the crew to a place where they've got forces available or forces near, near real time available. Uh, the first thing you take a look at, this is a relatively simple chart, but if you end up in a countdown hold, you get very familiar with this process. The launch azimuth is going to continue to change as you continue through this hold so that when you launch you will be in the proper plane for injection to the moon and uh king cernan and his launch i launched him i launched uh, the last american towards the moon basically we swung in virtually the entire aspect and we stuck up from 72 degrees we were down about 97 degrees and you got the entire navy driving south I mean, <laughs> full steam and all the boilers going through there and all of a sudden, as they get further south, and then they're holding, we continue holding their recovery forces being in place, instead of being a one hour, it's now four hours, it's five hours, it's six hours. But uh, we continue driving there. So you get very familiar with that. You make sure that uh, you're tagged up on when, how soon will they start the motion, when start moving, uh, once they have that. So basically, this is all done pre-launch while the crew's eating steak and eggs. We're basically uh, getting on top of uh, the work that we must do. We not only look at the weather down in that area, we had to look at the weather on a global basis. So these are all the places around the world. And you're, you have to put, get your notes in place, write them down, so if you're gonna make decisions, you say, I'm not going to that area, I'm going to an adjacent area, a different one. So it's a process of putting this all together. This is, uh, you always want to try to get the crew down in the landing area that is daylight. Okay, you don't want landings at night. You don't want to try to recover at night. So you're trying to put all these disconnected pieces together. Uh, this is uh, 
the simulation control room. Uh, as I make my rounds in mission control, I always go to talk to the people who train me. And I'll talk a bit more about that this evening because uh, these are the, I would say there's two reasons for our success in spaceflight. It is the process of developing the mission rules. This is an extremely complex process. The mission rules for Apollo 11 were about 300 pages. And I'd say about 24 to 2600 specific rules applying to that mission. Now it sounds like an awful lot, but if you break the mission down into phases, there's 12 mission phases there. So you divide that and maybe a couple hundred for each phase, but it's up to each controller to know the rules. And that basically represents a contract of rules between myself, my crew, and the program office. So that at the time we lift off, at the time we run into a problem, we all are thinking in the same direction. And the mission rules provide the initiative if we have a problem like we had in Apollo 13 or Apollo 12. Uh, we had some interesting problems there. Basically, that <laughs> provides the initial direction to get started in. And that is a really a roughly, comprises roughly about 30% of our total mission preparation time going through these rules. It's really getting the best engineering judgment on risk versus risk decisions and risk versus gain decisions. Because there's some time you got a problem you want to continue on because you're X so many seconds away from achieving that objective. That's a very, very dicey situation. So basically, um, you go through and, and they have exercised you all, so all the time you're working, writing these mission rules. Our training team is listening to us. They're sitting in the room with us. And they say, France just got fed up. They just said, this is the way we're going to do it. Well, the training team is going to see, is that the way we'll do it in real time? So they pulled us apart. The first time we got, they, uh, we had uh, a woman introduced into mission control. And she was right next to the real Dixiecrat down there. Are they going to work with each other? So they pluck in personalities, they pluck in individual skills, they pluck in just, we've reached the end of our, our, our road down here. Uh, is this the way they're going to accomplish something? And they're really marvelous at doing this job. They are a team just like my teams in Mission Control. So after I finish now, I go into uh, what we call the Mission Evaluation Room or the Span Room, where we have hotline communications uh, from Mission Control to all the manufacturers, uh, testing procedures right on down the line. And now these people have been listening to this countdown also as you, as you boot up the spacecraft, uh, various discrepancies that have showed up in there. So now you get on top of the hardware go to launch. And uh, you're finally, now you're getting to the point where you're pretty confident that, okay, this is, a, this is gonna be a go day. You uh, go back to your console and uh, start looking through my own personal mission rules. And these are the things to give a go for launch that I need. And I always write them out, these checklists are fine, but basically, I, these are the requirements I need within my ground system in order to give a go to the launch director. This is now a chart that's really key because it's, it affects, if I were to call a hold, what impact am I going to have on the launch team? 
what you want to do is you always want to call a hold where they have an easy access to a reset point. They don't have to recycle the entire countdown and go back maybe 30, 45 minutes. So basically it's just get to the point where, uh, yeah, you're going to hold it. This time here you can hold indefinitely in the left high it, until they, if they turn off the chill down there. Okay, in the center column is basically in T times, if we call a hold before T minus eight minutes, we'll reset to eight minutes. Okay, so it's really a question of uh, addressing our relationship now with the launch team. Now, in mission control, we are as close to the launch team as we are to our own team because we've worked with them literally hundreds of hours in preparation for each one of the missions. We're back to the launch azimuth right now because, again, you go back in after working the whole, the whole uh, what I say, scenario with the launch team. You go back in and go back through the launch azimuth, and now you mark up by mark up this one here. When I am not going to call a hole, or when I am going to call a hole, or how far we're going to go forward. Okay, this is, um, I'm back to that countdown I had before, because now this gets me in synchronization uh, for the final 12 minutes. And it's, uh, it's very interesting to get to this point. You'll see some more charts there. Because now, developing these simple charts here, these are less simple. This is my launch phase. I do this, uh, this to basically be able to visualize every event and when it should occur and what time in the clock it should occur and what call I expect. So that basically anything that is not, does not fit this, I become aware of instantly. This is the clock that is running in my head as we launch. And it's really amazing that later on tonight, I assume many of you will be here tonight, I'll go through the clock, I'll go through many of the mission rules decisions we had to make uh, during the landing, which is very difficult. So basically, if you go through the clock, it looks like uh, relatively simple. On the left-hand side are all the normal calls that I'd expect from my controllers. Basically, in the uh, launch, we have four mission abort modes. This determines the configuration of the spacecraft when you execute the abort. But several of these have sub-modes. Like, mode one has four sub-modes to this thing here. And they, these are all dependent upon when, uh, basically, you execute the abort before the spacecraft would land. And what you want to do is you always want to execute the abort at the point in flight where the trajectory will take the landing point down mission control. Three people have the ability to abort the launch. That's three people in mission control. Uh, during powered flight, the initial powered flight, the uh, launch director basically has an abort mode until we have tower clear. And what he does, he looks for fire, tower collision, engine out, engine failure, that kind of stuff. And that lasts for about 10 seconds. And once you go through that 10 second period, then the abort responsibility is my team. Now, I have three booster engineers sitting on the left side forward of the council, and each engineer, one engineer, has a single stage of the Saturn, S1, S2, S4B. They have the abort switch at their position. And basically the concern they have is such things as engine hard over where the 
spacecraft will start turning. You lose enough engines on one side and no longer can control. That's close into a spin-up mode. And the concern there is that as that spin-up mode accelerates, you'll break the tension ties that are holding manned service module attached to the S4B stage. And that's about 20 seconds. So the booster guys have about 20 seconds to make their decision. And it's uh, it's always interesting. 20 seconds of mission control for a training team is a lifetime. I mean, it is really incredible the kinds of things you can do. You can call up displays, you can talk options, you can discuss things, you can tell Capcom to tell the crew, and boom, off they go. But basically, uh, beyond that, for many of the systems responsibilities, systems aborts, it breaks down in a much shorter time frame. So basically, the um, booster engineers got aboard capability. My flight dynamics officer has one, and I have one. And these are all lock-lock switches, so you can't inadvertently hurt these guys, I mean, activate these guys. So basically, this is the mental process you're going through right now as the countdown is progressing. And it's uh, really interesting that now as you get more into powered flight, you have some uh, capabilities to abort that really weren't uh, planned when the designers designed it. Because we found out uh, through training that in sets two stage, you can force what we call an upstage, force a separation of the ignition of the S4B, or at the same time, upstage from the S4B to get the spacecraft accelerated to the point where we have a chance of making orbit. So this gets in a pretty dicey situation right here. Basically, these are options that are all in the back of your mind as you're getting ready to fly. That's basically it. And we got our video. We got a video. We're going to play some video here for a bit. I'll make some comments on it. Yeah, the one, uh, the one mode. Yeah, this is the crawler transporter. You know, when I first went down to the Cape, uh, they pulled. They get what uh, Tennessee River Rock, that is right, uh, right dimension and size for that crawler wing. And anybody who's driven a tractor knows that when you turn, you really mess up the earth. So you need to put small bearings on it. So the rock on the crawler way allows you to make minor lateral adjustments in there without digging into the uh, crawler way, which is pretty neat. Here's my, this is, uh, this is my row right down there. I was one of the uh, few flight directors who used a assistant flight director. I always like to have somebody looking over my shoulder uh, giving a rapid cross-check if I got uh, just overburdened with the calls and all that kind of stuff. Basically, pick up uh, the slack for me. It was, uh, to me, it was my wingman. Very important. Uh, this is basically my row. This is the uh, Capcom. This is a... Uh, Capcom's pretty important because the spacecraft communicator is an astronaut. And a lot of times we're making decisions that the crew would like to be a partner to. And basically, the Capcom exercises the crew's vote in the deliberation process and mission control. So basically, that way, I always have continuity to what's going on here. This is uh, when you launch one of these guys, you really pray that first 10 seconds to clear that tower. I mean, is a lifetime. And it's, it's really incredible. To, we don't have TV and mission control. All we got is telemetry. So we're watching this thing here. And uh, I think it would be a distraction. Everybody would want to watch this thing go away. But that's uh, uh, something the Saturn V is majestic. 
you know, and, and uh, down at the Cape when we were launching Titans, I launched a few Titans too. You could actually hear the boom, the rocket in, in the Mercury Control, and you could feel the building sort of rattle a bit, which was pretty cool. There's Chris Kraft, he's our boss. He is, we used to call him the teacher, and he was the ultimate, uh, what I say, risk taker. At, uh, always uh, cautioned his flight directors that no, when you launch, when you've committed to launch and you lift off, you have faced the highest risk of the entire mission. So now you guys got to make it pay off. That's really the strategy we use in uh, driving towards achieving our objectives wherever possible. Uh, I guess it's good that we couldn't see this mission control because we'd be mesmerized by this supposed to doing what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, see if I get some water. I look out of cold, so I'm having a bit of a problem here. There's Fred Hayes. So I worked with uh, Fred, you know, it was interesting. In my uh, first launch as flight director, I had the alarms start and Buzz Aldrin's flight Capcom, which is pretty cool. Uh, this thing would come, uh, come full loop there. The consoles, you know, the, you see the technology in these tubes you got there. The highest technology we had on our television, we could flip a switch and I could, we could go from white and black to black on white. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's amazing how after you're staring at those tubes for quite a while, that basically it really helps. And uh, that was cool. It's, we're still launching. You know, the, uh, everybody looks as soon as we get cut off, they think we're in orbit. We actually actually have to perform a circularization maneuver there. When you uh, see me with a different colored vest, uh, basically that's when I'm not on that particular mission, not flying that mission. I was division chief, so I fly through on Apollo all odd number of missions: one, five, one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen, and then fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. And final three because I had two teams working over on the Skylab. And reduce the amount of time we spent in training. Basically, I did the launch, Earth launch, and the lunar launch for those final three missions. This was a marvelous machine. You know, that I think about uh, you've probably seen the Saturn and down at one Cape or down in Houston, whatever it is. You take a look at that as the most complex device that kind of thing worked perfect every time we used it. And uh, it had a track record that uh, gave you confidence. I mean, I was fortunate they flew more limbs than anybody else either. And uh, this gave me out. This is this is Cliff Charlesworth. He was he was a blast to work with. He was the he was the launch flight director for Apollo Eleven. We used to call him the Mississippi Gambler. Because he played those mission rules to the point where he would always find some way to finesse. Let's go a little bit longer, press a little bit harder right on down the line. And this was the relationship that uh, I think was very important that we have with our crew because when we fly, the crew is totally dependent upon us, basically continuing to accept part of the risks of continuing on when we got problems. Um, a couple more war stories. And everybody knows what uh, happened in Apollo uh, 11 was close. It was really amazing. We had major issues 
uh, through the DSET. One issue impacted me directly, which is do we have enough uh, telemetry and voice data to continue uh, towards the landing? Uh, the other one was we had navigation aberration in there. We didn't know what was the cause after the mission. We found out, and we'll talk about that today. Uh, then we had the computer program alarms, and uh, any of you who are computer gurus, basically we were running normally at about 85% CPU there. And uh, when we had these computer program alarms, we had an input coming in from the radar, which was not inactive from the running radar, which had enough levels that we were running 97% CPU. So as the crew asked, what was that alarm about? The computer faulted down to just guidance and control. Bypass all of the other computer functions. That was pretty dicey. See, I got the red vest on, and uh, basically, uh, here I was just watching and go along. This is the, uh, unfortunately, I've lost several of these guys. I lost three of them this year. But this was an incredible team. I mean, these kids knew what they were doing. And they were inspired, and it was inspirational just, just to be their leader and to have the opportunity to work with them. So we're back with the Capcoms. I think we've probably got enough of that. Okay. Uh, if you have any questions, I'll try to answer it. But while you're, you're coming up with questions, Apollo 12 was interesting. We got hit twice by lightning and liftoff. We had two minutes to uh, save that mission if the reactor valves for the fuel zone closed. Apollo 13, you know about Apollo 14, was probably one of the most interesting ones for any computer geeks here. Uh, basically, as they're coming around the front side of the moon, one of my controllers saw a port bit set in the computer. As this said, the engine had been armed, it would have been a bad day. So he tells the flight director, he says he's got a See if that's a valid indication. He says, "The flight. We have the crew hit the abort switch with this flashlight, <laughs> and he hits the abort switch, and the indication went away. <laughs> so now they knew they had some kind of metallic contamination in the abort switch. And in two hours, we wrote a software patch to bypass the abort switch during engine start, so that the metallic contaminant under acceleration would move to a different location." And then as the crew's going down, Alan Shepard basically was enabling what we had just disabled. He was setting up all of his commands and the computer get that. That's how we got down to the 1415. We had two producer astronauts. Uh, basically, uh, <coughs> they uh, so dehydrated that blood chemistry changed and their potassium depleted. And they started having a series of PVCs on the, uh, on the surface. And when they left off, they both had some. So uh, we had some problems there, but it was it was an incredible program to work. But it didn't change there. Skylab was a blast. I think for engineers, I had as much fun in Skylab as I did in Apollo, because we had a system we had to keep alive for a year. And right off the bat, the launch went south on us when the you know, uh, basically a tunnel alongside the booster came loose and tore up one of the solar rays. And basically, we lost part of our thermal shield. So we flew that spacecraft manually for a year, I mean, for a month. One week, excuse me, manually for a week. 
Well, when some of the crews went down to Sears Roebuck and we got tools to run <laughs> We did. Sears Roebuck provided some neat tools that were modified. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't advertise it as that way. Uh, okay, wait for any questions you may have. <clears throat> wait, a couple of that here right up front. Mr. Prance, in the movie Apollo 13, you're portrayed as saying that that was NASA's finest hour. From your career, what was your finest hour? I would say, I, I would say I had many of them. It was really at the conclusion of every mission, I was damn proud of my, excuse me, darn proud of my team. <laughs> but basically, I think this was our finest. It was not, never mind, it was our team's finest hour. And, uh, I think there were times when I would sit down and say, it wasn't just my team, it was the program officer, it was the astronauts, and the people prepared the spacecraft and gave us this beautiful object, a launch, and take in the space, accomplish the mission, and bring it back. So, uh, personally, if I look at it, when I left mission control after the Hubble telescope repair, me, my gift, my finest thing was the culture I left in the teams of mission control. You know, it's interesting, the riskiest business in space, we never lost during my tour of man's space. Everybody belonged to be brought back home. Mr. Grants, uh, thank you so much for your contribution uh, to the program and for being here today. The, um, uh, I'm used to working with checklists, being in the military myself, and having served in the missile field. But what I wanted to know was, uh, we're used to seeing the recordings of this is the go, 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 as you lead up. How, um, how fast is somebody saying that that is no go? Uh, the, the jump from them reporting that to you to the point where you actually stopped the countdown? I never did, uh, fortunately. Uh, not, not, not from the standpoint of the Apollo 11, that was from Charlesburg. Basically, I held uh, for uh, mission control computers, which is the principal thing, because we had three machines in mission control. We always had one which was hot, that was uh, what we call uh, the one we were using for launch, and we had a dynamic standby. Then we had a third one. Uh, the only time I ever held was when this was before we go into auto sequence. Uh, I would hold for a countdown at a point where we'd recycle back at eight minutes if possible. Uh, one of my controllers is director of operations. I got called twice to headquarters for this. Because once you get into auto sequence, those final minutes, if you want to call a hold, it isn't a hold, it's a kill. And hundreds of things got to work perfectly, literally in milliseconds. So I would never myself call a hold if that would result in a kill. And neither would my controllers. Uh, basically, Neil, Neil Hutchinson on the, uh, I think it was the second shuttle launch, basically ran into that condition. And he looked up to see, and I nodded to go, and basically gave it a go. And, I broke my own mission rules, but that is just experience. There are certain things that you say, I'm going to take my chances that I won't lose the one computer I got. They can break the other one up, and I don't want to have the cape have to go through that kind of a critical procedure. 
So it's a teamwork kind of thing. It's, it's an interesting relationship you develop with your crew down at the Cape. As you reflect back on your career, a moment that you feel is most intense, most whether uh, euphoric or anxiety, I wonder if you could help us relive with you for one minute thoughts and feelings that and what was going on when you think that. Say that again. I, I got the feel, thoughts and feelings when what was going on. Yeah. A, a moment that stands out most in your mind from your career. Yes. The moment that stands out most in your mind from your career, or one of them, that was euphoric or most anxious for you, uh, I'd like to get in the mind of Gene Kranz as he lived through that. It was, uh, the, uh, everybody thinks it would be Apollo 13, but no, it isn't. Uh, it's actually an Apollo 11, because as the, we got the crew down, we had battled to get them to the surface, we're landing along. And in the final uh, 60 seconds, we don't have a measuring gauge on board the spacecraft. Basically, we know when the crew reports and we see telemetry of low level, that basically we got 120 seconds at a 30% throttle setting. So basically, we're crews throttling up, throttling down, right or down the line. And when I got a call that we had 60 seconds, I took a look at my displays. I knew what altitude they were at. I knew they were still ziggling around trying to find a landing spot. When he called 30 seconds is when I started to sweat. <laughs> you know, I was expecting the call at 15 seconds. I was holding on. There's two handles to remove the TVs and the consoles. I was holding on to that sucker. I wouldn't let go. And I was writing with one hand, my foot down the other. But basically, that was probably the toughest few seconds because a low down abort is near impossible. In other words, the crew is, well, I hate, NASA hated for us to use this term dead man's curve. But we were in an area down there where when you did what you call fire in the hole staging, you had to kill your vertical velocity and you got a much smaller rocket engine and the ascent stage to get your weight. So once you get below a couple hundred feet, basically you got to land and then abort. And that's, that's the toughest regime in the entire flight to occur. But uh, that was, that was uh, I think a lot of people were sweating. You should have seen. I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to tell you about tonight. I'll tell you tonight. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mr. Grace. She's number, uh, number five daughter. <laughs> Basically, what they're trying to keep me hydrated in here so I can keep talking. Go ahead, next on uh, Any others? Uh, Mr. Grants, um, as a military air traffic controller, I'm, I'm out of it now, but one thing I learned very quickly is that emergencies don't happen by the book, nor do they happen on schedule. I wish they did. That being said, what was your approach to um, an emergency that, that you weren't expecting, you weren't ready for, and you had to manage your risk so that people wouldn't get killed? It was probably, it was probably 13. There was another one on uh, Gemini 8. But Apollo 13 was... Uh, I was fortunate that I had flown uh, two lunar modules, so I had uh, incredible confidence in my team and confidence in that spacecraft. So the first thing I thought about was I faulted down. You know, when you want to make a decision, you don't want to do it and very impetuous. So I faulted down and said, okay, I had had two electrical problems on my shift prior to the explosion. So my initial impression for about the first 60 seconds was, Electrical problem. We'll solve it. We'll get the crew to sleep. 
doesn't work the problem. Then one of my controllers said we had a pretty big bang associated with that. Well, I had a similar experience on the Apollo 9 where a crew reported big bang. And I was trying to relate to, to what could be the cause of that. So now I proceeded in what I'd say down mode, mode two, much more cautiously. And then when the crew looking out the window said they saw something bending, then it was survival mode. So basically I moved down. But then the next thing was is to find, find time by time. And I had two decisions. Are we going to come around the front side of the moon and come home? Or are we going to go the long way around? Come around the front side of the moon, boom. I'd have to use uh, an engine that uh, something somewhere in that service module had, had messed up. Something had exploded. Something was bad there. Did I trust that engine? No. Going around the moon, I knew the odds would be very long to get that crew back home because I knew that this lunar module was designed as a two-day spacecraft. I'd have to make it a four-day spacecraft for three people. But I had the confidence in my team that that could be done. So to answer your question, the first thing was I downloaded, and then I took direction that would buy time to think and work around the problem. Here we go. This is one of my seatmates for breakfast over here. Yes, Mr. Kress, thank you so much for all your service. Uh, you've seen a great change in technology over the years. What is the greatest change that you've seen in technology that deals with spaceflight since you started? I think the most important thing, most important change was when we started off in Mercury. We had to put 13 extracting stations around the world. So I had to put 13 teams of three people out there, plus one team in Mercury Control. So I had 14 teams that had to be integrated as one team. And that was almost impossible because the communications did not exist. We used low-speed teletype. We taught our controllers, believe it or not, speed printing, because all messages had to be written out, sent to a teletype operator, he typed them out, go around halfway around the world to another site, be typed out, and somebody would run it to a controller. So basically, we're trying to fly a spacecraft moving five miles per second uh, with a communication system that at best could get maybe 60 words per minute. Uh, High-speed data, you worry about the gig and makers and all that kind of stuff. Well, we were in the one kilobit <laughs> was low-speed data, and two kilobits was high-speed data. <laughs> so this, this was the change that made mission control possible. And uh, I think about uh, many close calls, not many, a few close calls we had in the Mercury program, and basically just happened to have the right people at the right site to make the call. Uh, Gordon Cooper's mission was probably the toughest because he had uh, cascading electrical failures down there and basically ended up basically flying the spacecraft in manually. But basically, that was the greatest change, and that way I, I didn't have 13 sites I had to provide, and Gemini had only eight, and by the time I got to Apollo, I had only two ships. And basically, the ships were placed under the place where he did the uh, translator injection. So basically, it was communication technology was the key. There's all kinds of advice, but the one the one that was brought home to me in a very bloody fashion by my training team was learning to listen. 
You know, it's, it's interesting. The, uh, the training guys I told you were just incredible. Uh, they would pick a person and they would basically eviscerate him. I mean, you just were dead and you didn't know it. You didn't even hurt until you debriefed. Uh, but basically, it was to the point where uh, I uh, got impatient out there and they gave me a case where we had a propellant leak and board the uh, service module. And he's counting time about how many seconds, how many how much propellant, what the quantity is right or not. Trajectory guys trying to make up a mind what kind of what mode he's going to call and abort to. I couldn't get these two guys together, so I made the decision. I aborted him. Wrong. Okay, because at the time I aborted him, I aborted him over the Atlas Mountains, and the mountains are higher than the parachutes would open at. So basically, I killed the crew. And basically, it's just to the point where uh, they finally get people that will give you this ultimate lesson. You have to, uh, we practice what is called ruthless honesty uh, between the controllers and ourselves. I mean, we're very rugged in each other because we're dependent upon each other. But uh, the, uh, my training team blew me out of the water that day. And same thing, I'll tell you a story about Apollo 11, which is very interesting. Uh, normally, our final training run is sort of like graduation day. Uh, we generally spend a half day with the prime crew and a half day uh, with backup crew or some other crew. And my training team decided my team was not ready to graduate yet. And they gave us a series of programs, a series of problems related to computer program alarms. They gave us the exact problem we faced on the landing day and we blew it. My guidance officer, Steve Bales, made the call to abort, we aborted. And then, uh, sort of angry, you know, that we had to abort this, the last one. And then our training instructor came on and said, why did you abort? And my guidance officer said, I had that computer program alarm. He said, but your mission rules required two cues. What was your second cue? What was the second cue there? Spacecraft guidance was still going, working properly, right on the line. And uh, we got together with MIT Draper Labs and went through computer program alarms. Then we did uh, rehearse them with the uh, with the backup crew uh, the following day until, boy, we had those guys nailed. But basically, these are the kind of things that, you know, <laughs> wonder what would have happened if we'd seen it real time. I think we would not have aborted I think we have always played more conservative in the, uh, in the simulations than we do on the real mission. We tend to press the real mission a little bit, not much, a little bit. And I, but the problem is I think that having that sustaining five computer program alarms would have reduced our margin to work other problems. I think it would have taken away some of our operational margin. Anyway, one more question. Who's going to ask the final one? Thank you for being here. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts or uh, reflections on our future in space, you know, whether it be Mission to Mars or Space Force or future trips to the moon? There's uh, many aspects of that question. And uh, I was up in Washington and had the opportunity to talk to Senator Cruz and some others. And uh, to me, I think the greatest challenge it's not the mission itself, it's developing the leadership you need for the mission. 
uh, developing a team and then pulling together this nation uh, in a single objective, just like President Kennedy did. Uh, we're so divided in this country that if we want to accomplish anything, we are incapable of accomplishing anything. So there's some point, there has to be some focus, some way that we can pull this nation back together. And if we can do that, then we can do anything. Uh, I've always felt that a what America will dare America can do. And I think that if we could get that unity, then we have, I think, the capabilities to move forward faster. Uh, without that, we're going to be, I think, spinning our wheels for a long time. But uh, to answer more specifically, I think the commercial operators, I think it's great to have that kind of capability now, have competition between the government and commercial entities, find out who's going to come up with the best system in the fastest possible fashion. Uh, I have some worries about the uh, crew ops that are coming up because I don't think we know enough about some of the spacecraft they're going to be flying in. But uh, that's grown up. I think we're in many ways with the commercial operators. We're back where we were in the early Mercury program. Uh, we've got marvelous technology nowadays, and it's really how we assemble that thing to accomplish missions. So I, I think we're capable of moving further, faster, if we can build the leadership to make it happen. I do have a call-in number. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.